0: Through the books of the Bible, you'll find yourself at topics that sometimes are controversial or um, a little difficult, even in interpretation. There's a few things here that might lend itself to difficulty, but um, I think as we understand biblical headship, that we're going to see that everything in this whole passage is all of, and, is all of the Bible, but everything in Corinthians is about the glory of God. We're going to see that. We've already seen that, um, but we will see that today in this chapter. Now, one of the things that we'll begin with is verse 2, where Paul commends the Corinthians. And we know there's a lot of things he's been talking about. He's been kind of correcting a lot of issues with them. But once again, he takes a moment to commend them for what they are doing well. And so verse 2, he says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. So many, of course, obviously understand this to to mean that it's the gospel as Paul taught the gospel, obviously the truths of the faith that the apostles preach to the church. We understand that. I also believe though that some of these traditions are things based on the word of God for the sake of people, things that we do for the for the reasons we've already seen. When Paul would say, okay, maybe in this situation you don't eat that so that you don't offend a, a person here to give you the opportunity to bring them closer to christ or or whatever so many times for the sake of the gospel there are things we do or don't do um, that actually um, may not be a direct command of god's word but are based on god's word based for the purpose of furthering the gospel and i think this idea that we're looking at here that he talks about in this chapter is something called head coverings right i think that falls in to, to some of this this is a practice that I think possibly could be, Paul could be alluding to in the context here, because he's beginning this section by saying, you guys are doing some things that I've told you to do, and I appreciate that you're still doing those, but I want to make sure you understand why you're doing those. I think that's kind of the context as you look at verse 3, because he begins that by saying, but I want you to understand. So I think there's a good connection here. Verse 2, thank you for continuing these traditions, but now I want you to understand that, and here it is. Here's, here's the understanding of why, at least in this culture and in this context, the women were asked to wear a head covering. He said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul lays down here, without really addressing the head covering first, he lays down a biblical principle that he'll use to address does that make sense? He lays down the principle of headship. And, and, and this is huge in itself. Obviously, uh, ver- verse 3, there's a lot of questions here. First, we see that, that Christ, that God is the head of Christ. That sounds funny because we, we hear that Christ and God are equal, right? Jesus is God. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So what is this speaking of? Well, again, this principle of headship or authority and we, we see this even in the Godhead. We have God the Father, God the Son. And what did we see Christ on earth as he lived on earth? He was submissive to the Father. So again, we see this, this order, this created order of headship, and also non-created in the sense that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit exist as three individuals, and yet there's a submission to one another, and yet perfect equality. That again blows our minds. But this is the principle Paul lays out. And he says, I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ. That's the first thing he says. The head of every man is Christ. And then he says, the head of a wife is her husband. And of course, the head of Christ is God. Now, what is this word, head, and what does it mean? Now, in the Greek, it's the word kephale. Kephale. And so, I'm just going to tell you what that means in the Greek. I know when when people continue to move through these verses, we try to help God not look bad in some way, right? We want to help God be culturally relevant and cool, right? (laughs) And not outdated and antiquated or bigoted or whatever we're afraid of. I'm simply going to give you the Greek definition of kephale. It means to be supreme over or to be superior in rank. That's it. I'm just saying that's the word that Paul used. And so um, as we look at that, it's it's saying, and if, if we read that again, that the head of every man is, or I'm sorry, yeah, the head of every man is Christ. It's saying the superior to man is Christ. Christ is every man's supreme. That's the word also, supreme superior. And we understand that, that one. That one totally makes sense. Christ is the creator. He made us. He is our head, our supreme, or superior. That one we understand. and We should not even argue with that. But in the context, he continues now to connect that meaning that there's no question about. He uses the same words and says, the supreme of a wife is her husband, or the superior. I know we try our best not to use that that kind of language we try to explain that but i'm just reading again as the greek would say it and what it says and what we understand to mean about christ and man he uses the same thing to say well the superior of the wife is her husband and the superior or head of christ is god there is an order paul is saying here and it's unmistakable we really can't just brush it off or explain it away as a matter of fact this is the same word used of Christ in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So let's look at that. When, when the Bible says, and he put all things under his feet, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He is the supreme, the superior over the church, which is his body, that's all of us, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, we we, we see this unmitigated and uncontroversial. You can't debate it. Christ is the head of his church. I mean, he's the superior of the church. And that's the same word that Paul used for husbands over wives and the same word that, of course, Christ is over all mankind. Now, (laughs) our world um, sees this idea of headship or creation order as a negative, degrading, demeaning, terrible thing, right, to, to talk about. Um, a lot of this has been eroded by egalitarian teachers to say, well, there's no, there is no order, there is no creation order, there is no authority structure. Uh, it's total equality, period. There is no one submitting to anyone else. And again, the problem with all of that is basically the Bible. We have a problem with words that we just saw that can only mean one thing, and they are here. And again, we must understand we don't make our doctrine based on feelings or cultural relevance or what people think or what logic seems to dictate. We must rest in what God has revealed in his word. we have to look at that. Now, that may not always even sit well with us in our own hearts. But yet we have to look at the word, and we have to submit to, to the word. In our day, again, it's hard for people to wrap their head around the idea that God made male and female. A matter of fact, yeah, we can stop there, period. In our day, it's hard for people to admit or to wrap their head around the fact that God made male and female, period. <laughs> that there are only two genders, right? That there's male and female. But that's what the Bible says explicitly over and over. But it's also hard for them to understand that not only did God make male and female, but he made male and female unique. There's a uniqueness. It's glorious. It's, It's God's sovereign plan, but there is a uniqueness in male and female, right? There are differences to a male versus a female. Other than the old antiquated uh, book that says uh, women, women are from Venus and men are from Mars or whatever, there's, there's, there's real tangible differences, right? Appearance. We look different. There's appearance. Strength. There's a difference. I told you this message is not approved by the culture at large, all, right? So warning. But there is a difference in strength between a male, biological male, and a biological female. I can never say this word, but men have testosterone. Did I say it? Testosterone. Testosterone. What is it? Testosterone. Testosterone. Whatever that is. <laughs> and there's a difference, right? This, the, the the whole chemical makeup of a man lends in his muscles, his bone structure, his muscles. Uh, again, make generally again males stronger than females now there's exceptions to all rules and, and different things there but for the general uh, creation order that's that's a difference in male and female appearance women are beautiful men are normally ugly and i'm kidding uh, 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 strength right men are normally stronger women are a little weaker wow man i'm gonna this gets online we're having some fun even thought process and all the women said amen there's a difference in thought process. There's a, way, a difference in the way women think and a difference in the way men think. That's all by design, and it can be frustrating to us, but God had a purpose <laughs> in, in, in that. So those are realities, and I don't care what we try to say and how equal we try to make things and even how non-essential we try to make gender and even gender. like there is no gender, or on the other extreme, gender can be whatever you want it to be, um, and you can deny any type of creation in yourself, or any type of gender creation in yourself. Uh, the, the truth is, there's differences, and we're seeing more and more, by the way, that that difference that God has made in a man and a female, a male and a female, is so deep that even after the acceptance by culture, even after the surgeries, and even after the drugs or the the, the hormones or whatever. There's still brokenness, emptiness, confusion, and admission that no matter what is tried, you will always be what God made you to be. It's sad because people are trying their best to recreate themselves instead of rest in God's perfect plan for them. That's hard, and I I feel bad for that. I mean, I don't think we should make fun of or, or, or try to get on the bandwagon of you know, joking about or putting down. It's a, it's, it's a broken reality. It's sad. It's a sad result of sin. And we should pray for those people love those people and give them the light of their true identity. It's Christ. And God, he has made them unique as who they are. And they're glorious in that. And, and, and that moves me to my second point. There are differences in male and female. But there's also similarities, and we need to understand that. The similarities, intelligence is one. You are no more intelligent because you're a woman, or no more intelligent than, than if you're a man. Now, both species doubt, or both sexes kind of doubt that about the other, right? They, they would say, no, oh, there is a difference. I am more intelligent as a man, I drive better, and all that, or vice versa. Women are like, man, there's, I'm way more intelligent than that, that goofball. But it's true, there, we have been created with intelligence. And it's, it's equal in, in the sense that, that, that a man or a woman can attain to, to high ranking uh, positions of doctor or lawyer or physicist or chemist or, or come out with breakthrough cures. Uh, that's, that's how we're made, right? That's the similarities as human beings. Giftedness, it's pretty equal the Bible says that God gives gifts equally to all the church, all the people. It doesn't mean that he never says men get more gifts than women or women get more gifts than men. It's equal. So there's that now, everybody doesn't have the same gifts, but proportionally God is liberal with his gift giving. It it, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you're getting gifts. You're gifted. We'll talk about that in just a moment, how that, how that works. The imago Day is the same. We are male and female, doesn't matter. We're both equally made in the image of God and therefore are valuable. And there's, there's, there's worth to that because of the image of God on us. So, so I hope that makes sense. So then what is this headship about? What is all this about then? What, what, are, my, what are we talking about when, when, when Paul's talking about this order, this, this word of you know, superior, superior. This is again, I, I, I've heard guys preach this, even growing up, and they did everything they could to say, no, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean superior. doesn't mean that the husband's the superior to the wife. Uh, but that's the Greek word. Now, I'm going to explain that. But I see it, it, everybody's getting a little itchy. So we have to see headship the right way. We have to understand what the Bible's talking about, that word head, kephale, kephale. It's a fitting Greek word, isn't it? Because when you preach on this, you have to do it very kephale. Get it? Very kephale. (laughs) Now again, what does it mean to be supreme over or superior in rank or in order? So think about that. When we hear words like that, it's a military term, right? The the idea of rank, the idea of superior and subordinate. Okay, that's the, the terms here. And we always jump to the subordinate it seems, and, and we, we feel bad. Well, the subordinate, they're under something. They, they have to submit to something. They have to follow orders, right? The poor private, right? And, and he's got to do everything that the superior is telling him to do. But we, we seldom think about the superior and some of the genuine pressure that's there because think about this. To be superior means you have complete responsibility for those put in your care. You have the complete responsibility for those put in your care. That's what it really means. That's what we're talking about. When Paul, when, when, when Paul is saying, hey, fellas, you, yes, wives, your husband is your head. He's responsible for you. He's responsible to care for you, to love you, to cherish you. To nurture you, to build you up, to protect and to provide, all of those things. That's the that we jump to the negative so fast we don't see the glorious positive that God has built into this. There's a reason for that, that order. Just think about this this way: Christ is the head of every man, right? He's responsible for us. This is glorious news to know that now that I am under Christ. He's totally responsible for me. That's wonderful. I mean, since Christ is the supreme over his church, his bride, that means he's fully responsible for her. He he doesn't browbeat her. Christ doesn't do that as our good shepherd who who is responsible for us. He's our head. No, no, he causes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. He cares for us because he's responsible for us. He's our head. Now do you see the glory in that? This, the, the, the way that Christ exercises his headship over the man is the same way the man should exercise his headship over his wife. And that's where Ephesians 5 comes in. As we begin to understand this whole headship thing, it does take away... The, the little weapon that the enemy has to try to cause division among the genders, to try to cause division among what God has made, meant for good, this complementarian idea that we are, we are equal in the sight of God, but yet he's given us roles to care for one another, but they're for our good. And they're complementary. They, they complement one another. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 27, that beloved verse at all weddings... Begins by saying, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is big language, folks. And what I mean by that is it means exactly what everybody fears it means. I I, I meant that, what I said just now. It means exactly what our world fears it means. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you would to the Lord. So that means what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Again, the language is plain. This is God's book. We didn't make this up. Therefore, our job is not to question it or revise it. Our job is to submit and to read it and to say, what are you saying, God? He's saying, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the supreme of the wife even as Christ is the supreme of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to Christ so that's that that the words mean what they mean is the church takes a subordinate role to their savior Christ their head their supreme so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now that is probably as hard to preaching on that as I've even heard. I'm shocking myself here. I mean, that is straight stuff that'll get you thrown into political jail today. Let's face it. But this is what the Bible says. And we've got to read it, right? We have to say, okay, God, what are the words? What are you saying? This is what he's saying. But the glorious part of that, again, is instead of focusing on this, oh, this, this submission, again, and that word submit does not mean to obey like a child obeys a parent, blindly. It does mean a willing followership, a willing submitting. I willingly place myself under the headship. This is what it, that's what it's saying there. Why? Because the head has placed himself under the headship of Christ. That's the way it should be. The the husband has already humbled himself under the headship of Christ. Husbands, therefore, will love their wife as Christ loved his church. That's what it says, right? Husbands, therefore, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That's, That's providing for her, caring for her, building her up having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, the idea of headship in a marriage, our job is to build our wives up in such a way, clean them up, just glory over them, dote over them, protect them, care for them, present them as something that is respectful and and glorious, and honorable, and and really is the apple of our eye, something we cherish so much, and we love to see other people, not in a lustful or perverted way, but in a respectful way, see this beautiful bride presented in glory and splendor, and in all respect. Do Do you see that? That's what Christ is doing with us, his church, and that's exactly what he's telling husbands, as the head of their wives, that they should be doing she willingly then submits to that loving servant leadership and she is built up and sanctified. Again, this is harder preaching, I think, on husbands than wives because let's face it, the sin in most of this stuff is in the husbands. This is, this is not a counseling session here, but I'm telling you, love and respect is a cycle. And when I hear guys, well, she just don't respect me as king. And I have to remind these guys you're not king by simply coming home and declaring, I'm the king. That's not it. Are you loving her? Have you given yourself up for her? Have you given up something you really want to do because she has a need? Until you begin to love your wife sacrificially like that, and you love her like Christ loved the church, and you just your main goal is to present her as a spotless, beautiful ornament of glory, why would she respect you? You see that cycle? We love our wives, we serve them, we should, we should. Now, again, no husband is perfect. I understand we're all human, but as we give ourselves up for our wives, our wives respect us, it's a it's an endless cycle. But again, wives, many of you disrespect your husband so much, joke about him, put him down, never appreciate what he's done. Why would he love? You see the cycle, the the never ending cycle that develops is a lack of respect and a lack of love. And that's the cycle that keeps going. Whereas this beautiful picture here is, is this beautiful picture of sacrificial love that the savior gives for his church. That's the sacrificial love that should be happening in a marriage when a husband says, you know, I will do that with you. I will spend this time. I do care. I will listen. To this story that I think I already know the ending to. But I'm going to listen as though I don't. <laughs> that kind of thing. And even if the wife knows it, at least she knows he's doing that purposely. At least she knows he cares enough. And there will begin to build this respect and this love. And it continues as a cycle. That's the glory of this whole thing. So it's not, it's not this browbeaten, I'm the boss. You shut up, woman. Listen to me. That is Sin. That is sin. That is nothing at all of the plan and purpose that God has in this, this thing of gender and the, the roles of male and female in marriage. But he's so plain here with it. We, we can't miss it. Let's just pray again. The Holy Spirit gives us the grace to accept this beautiful plan of headship and what it really is. It's a picture of the Godhead. And it's a picture of the gospel. And it's only because of our sin and our selfishness and our in our, in our own desire to rule as men or our rebellion and this fear of being quote trampled that women will rebel to that if we would all submit first and foremost to christ together and then to one another we would receive this glorious gift that god has made for us okay now we kind of drifted setting this up away from the, the thing at hand right head so what does head coverings have to do with all this you're saying right Well, here it is. He moves into that after he set that precedent about headship and and how that should work. He moves into verse 4 and 5. Here's here's the problem in Corinth. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, we already know what head means. We already know who the heads are. For For the husband to cover his head when he prays in church, he dishonors Christ. That's his head. And for a wife to pray in the service with her head uncovered, she's dishonoring her head, which is her husband. Now, let's note what this verse is saying. Number one, one thing we get from this passage that sometimes is overlooked is this. Women can pray and prophesy in the service. That's not even debated here. Paul's not debating, can a woman pray in church? He's not debating that. He's not saying, can she prophesy? Now, prophecy is different than preaching. Prophecy is is what I would relate today in our day is more of a testimony of what God has done. We're speaking forth truth about God here's what God has done, here's truth about God, here's the truth of God in my life, that kind of thing. And, and we've had that and do that. If a woman reads a, a verse, that's telling forth the truth of God's word without doing what we will move on to here in a moment and explain, usurping authority over a man. But Paul's not dealing with any of that here. He's simply saying this is customary for, for the body to get together, the church to meet, and men and women praying together and prophesying but the problem is not the praying and prophesying the problem is doing it with the head either covered as a man or uncovered as a woman now let's look at this where where does this come from well during this time in history it was culturally understood that a woman showed respect for her husband by having long hair and wearing coverings paul deals with this a little bit later and we're going to i don't want to jump ahead of myself but it was just a natural thing for the romans the jews and the greeks for men to have shorter hair and for women to have longer hair Now that was just a a historical thing but also it was a cultural thing for women to wear coverings over their hair even if they have longer hair the An artificial covering. Now, he didn't use the word for veil like many of the Middle Eastern company uh, companies countries do today, where it's a total veil over the face and the head. This was simply the word for maybe what we would call shawl, where a shawl would be brought up over just the head and hang down over the shoulders, which you also see in Middle Eastern countries today. But you see, even today, that this cultural thing, those countries are slow to change cultures. So it shows us that this was accepted. This was. This is a cultural, culturally accepted way to show respect of a wife for her husband. So, we also have to bring into account that moving in toward this time, the patriarchal form of, of, of rule in a home, which again, I believe, without a question, is modeled in the Bible. It's a scary word today. Again, patriarchy. Here we go again. Here come the thought police right now. Um, But it had been abused. There's no question. That's what we have to admit. We have to admit that that patriarchal idea was abused by sinful men. Women were treated as second-class citizens. They were were treated as though they had no rights. They were treated like a piece of property. They couldn't even testify in court because they just weren't to be believed. I mean, so many wrongs here. And, that, and, and, and here's the point to that backdrop of, of, of this abuse and men being uh, you know, selfish and, and bigoted and, and, and sinful, literally abusive. The gospel comes along. And it, and it brought liberty to these, these people who trusted the gospel. People like women and children and the impoverished and slaves. This was revolutionary. The message of the gospel is revolutionary because what it said was this, that we're all created in the image of God and that believers were all one in Christ and equal in Christ. Oh, that's unheard of. Wait a minute, you mean women too? Yeah. You mean I'm equal in the eyes of Christ with my husband? Yeah. I'm made in the same image as, as God, as he is? Yeah, my intelligence is the Yes, I could. I could bear witness in a court of law. And be trusted? Yes, <laughs> that's 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 the message and the liberty of the gospel. You see, Galatians three twenty eight is one of the most known verses for this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that radical message? during this bigoted time of Rome and this this misuse and mistreatment of of women. And here comes the gospel and and says, look, if you're in Christ, then, then, then you're equal. Colossians 3.11 goes on to say this, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all. Now let's really again be careful because even these verses of great news and glad tidings of the equality of Christ and our identity being Christ can be misused. Some have taken these verses to mean, oh, there is no more male and female, period. That's not what Paul was saying here. Obviously, we know there are male and female. We we actually know that there's still Jews and Greeks. We still know that if you were from barbaria, you'd still be a barbarian. We, we also know that if you were from Scythia, you'd still be a Scythian. Um, if you're from Podank, Kentucky, you're still Podank. I mean, I'm just saying, whatever, whatever you're, you're from, right? And, and, and so that the reality of some of these things don't change, but it's the identity. Your first and foremost identity is not your ethnicity, is not where you're from, is not uh, whether you're male or woman. Your first identity is Christ. And therefore, you're equal in that. You, 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 male or female, you come to Christ the same way. Men don't have any special privilege to get saved over women. A woman comes to Christ just like a man. A Jew comes to Christ just like a Greek. A barbarian gets saved just like a Scythian by the grace of God. So really what this is talking about is the ground is totally level at the cross. And once we come to Christ, we are one family in Christ. This makes it, We're brothers and sisters now. Obviously, for the sake of order that Paul is even still talking about in our text there is still male and female there is still marriage there is still children to be raised and respect to be given we understand those things and yet for the Christian there's a glorious model there's a glorious type that we look to as we submit and as we rule It's Christ, and there's nothing like it when we submit to God's original design. That's that's what what we're we're going to see here. Let's quickly continue here. Obviously, because of this, folks, because of this radical idea of the gospel, we could see where the church quickly became and was recognized as the only fellowship in Rome in the whole Roman Empire where all were welcome, regardless of nationality, social status, sex, or economic position. So therefore, some of the women began to take that a little too far, right? And, and all of their newfound liberty, they began to burn their head coverings, so to speak, to use the analogy from the 60s, if you know what I'm saying. But they began to say, we're liberated, we're free, and we're going to burn our head cover, we're done with that. And, and there's a problem, because Paul said, no, 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 just a minute, not so fast, Yes, we're free in Christ, yes, it's glorious, yes, we are equal in his image, but not so fast. Now, he goes back to the argument, verse 6, about why you should still submit to this cultural thing of head coverings. This is, this is, this is the heart of the matter here. He says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is a disgraceful, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Disgraceful to who? For a woman to cut her hair short was disgraceful to who? To the culture at large. Now, this is, again, a little little something, right? You mean Paul's worried about the culture? If we keep in mind everything we've seen Paul talk about up to this point, this is in perfect context. What did he say? He said, there's times when you've got to give up your rights for the sake of your brothers and sisters and for the sake of the lost. There's times you are free to do anything. You're free to throw your head coverings away. Sure. So, so all things are lawful, but not all things are always prudent. Prudent are expedient, are even helpful. And remember what the rule was? That every decision we make should be for two, two, two reasons. For the evangelizing of someone and for the edification of someone. And that's why Paul's trying to put the brakes on here. He said, now wait a minute. Yes, we're free. But it is very disgraceful to the culture for you to do what you're doing. And if you're going to have an audience with these people about the gospel, they're already going to turn you off. So if you can do something... It's not a not a sin and not a totally breach of your conscience, then, then do it. So, as I said, in both Roman and Greek cultures, it was understood that a woman who had long hair and wore a covering was submissive to her husband. That was a culturally recognized thing. It was proper, according to God, even. God even says it's right for a woman to submit to her husband and to be respectful. Only the temple prostitutes had shaved heads. There's your disgrace, right? For a woman to shave her head, what are you trying to be, a a prostitute? Now, again, this is culture. I'm not saying we're judging Shaquille, that bald-headed singer years ago, or any, I'm not saying we, we judge bald women today. I'm just saying in this culture, in this culture, it was just widely accepted that, man, if you shave your head, you are a prostitute, basically. There's no grace in you. It's disgraceful. So Paul argued in chapters 9 and 10. Again, remember, this is the big point here. Since he argued in chapters 9 and 10 to give up certain rights for the sake of others, for their evangelization or their edification, he's arguing here. Wear the head covering. (laughs) Do it for the glory of God. Do it for the gospel's sake. So, one more argument. He uses creation. So so he's really making this point. He's saying, because this is important, this next one. He goes from the cultural argument, which which says, hey, just out of loving care for your neighbor, go along at this because it's not a bad thing to show respect for your husband. And if this culture looks at that as respect for your husband, then go ahead and do that. So that's, that's not a bad thing he's saying. And even culturally, it's not bad. But now he goes a little step further about respecting husbands and, and, wife, and, and husbands loving their wives. Look at this. Verses 7 through 10. Because he, he, he says it's not just a cultural thing. So basically saying, so when this cultural thing ends and women don't wear head coverings anymore, which by the way, that's where we are now. That's why we don't wear head coverings. When this thing ends and it, the head covering thing is over as a show of respect... God is going to show us here, respect doesn't stop. A wife respecting her husband is not cultural. It's a God-ordained order. This is what we see now in verses 7 through 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. A man should not cover his head. This is where we get, folks, the old idea of a guy wearing a hat in church, or a guy wearing a hat inside. Because it it was just, again, this cultural thing, you dishonor your head when you cover your own physical head. But the woman is the glory of man. So the reason a man is called, he's the glory, okay, let's read this again. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Man was made first in the image of God. That's what we all agree with, right? I'm sure we all would go back to Genesis and we see that God made man first. He made Adam first. He made him in his image. Notice here that Paul says, but the woman is the glory of man. doesn't say anything about the image of God. As a matter of fact, since the woman was made out of man, she's the glory of man. Man is the image and glory of God in this order. This is the order that Paul's using here. That doesn't mean that, that male and female don't have the same imago day, But in the order, he is saying, here's what God has set up. Because the woman was taken from man, she's the glory of man. For man was not made from woman. So again, this is an argument that has nothing to do with culture. So nobody can come and say, well, things have changed. Times have changed. We're not the Romans or the Greeks anymore. No, but God's still the one that made the world. God is still the one that created male and female. And that's what Paul's using now that's the argument he's making now for man was not made from woman but woman from man so there we see a creation order argument that transcends culture and goes directly to the man the man the god who made us you want to argue with this take it up with him it's above my pay grade i'm just reading i'm just the messenger neither was man created for woman but woman for man that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels Now, none of this deals with human culture now he just left all earth and flew right into heaven and said this is why wives you will submit to your husband because god made it that way for his glory. And the angels, what's that mean, because of the angels? Well, we know the angels are talked about in scripture as even peering into our worship services, that they they don't understand this whole thing of redemption. They don't understand why Christ left his throne and died for us. They, they, they peek in to our worship services, and, and they're watching. But I think it's even more than that. I think it's an analogy. I think that was a very known analogy, but I think it even applies to this. All people who are looking in, all who are looking in, are looking for a witness of, of order and and consistency and glory and what's our purpose and how did God design us. And therefore, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority or respect for her husband on her head. Now, now let's put that to today's language. Again, today, if you wear a, a beanie on your head or even a head covering, the world's not going to look at you and say, oh, there's a woman who loves her husband and, and, and respects him. They're going to say, oh, there goes there a Mennonite or something like that. That's all they're going to say. But today, when, when the world sees a husband and wife who, who live together in, yes, mutual submission to one another and to Christ, but also in order, there's a respect that the wife has for the husband. There's a godly order. The children know that mom and dad are a unit, but they also know that mom respects dad and that dad ultimately is responsible for all of us. Again, that's what the word head means, right? And if he's the head of the wife, therefore he's the head of everybody. And that order brings peace, whether this world realizes it or not. That order brings peace when we rest in it. And that's what Paul's saying here. You say this goes way more than culture. The cultural argument is for your witnessing purposes so that you don't offend everybody. The real reason you're going to respect each other and respect your husband and women and show a sign of authority is for God. <laughs> because that's part of creation. Now, let's hurry. Oh, man, I'm sorry, guys. Here we go. We got to keep going, though. Listen to this. We see this very same pattern in 1 Timothy, all right? It's a teaching regarding women, just like this one, and it also then gives a reason for it. It gives, it gives a prohibition for a, a, a woman, and, and it gives the reason. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, here's the prohibition. Do not have your heads uncovered. Here's the reason. Well, First Timothy 2, 11 through 14 is another very popular verse that we get derided over for talking about, but let's read it. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, that's the prohibition, that's the teaching. Again, folks, I'm just reading it. And I do believe it. But what does it say? What, what, what is it? It's pretty plain. A woman has learned all quietness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or usurp authority over the man. That idea of teaching, well, I thought she could prophesy. That's different. He, He explains it right here, the difference between praying on stage, reading the Bible on stage, even giving a personal testimony of what God has done, or making an announcement. The difference is this, for a woman to get up in a gathered service of the church, and to open the word of God, the sacred word of God, and begin to proclaim it with authority over the men of that congregation is not permitted. That's what he said. I, I suffer not a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It's not that she can't teach. What I mean is it's not that she's not capable of teaching. We talked about giftedness before, and man, I'm telling you, I know a lot of gifted women who can teach Circles around most men. I mean, there's no question that that there are many women who get up here and just preach all up and down this place, whatever that means. But I meant that to be a good thing. They can really do it. But if somebody once said, again, we don't base what we do for God on our pragmatism. We don't base our conviction about women preaching on whether they can do it or not or whether they're gifted or not. We base it on what does God say about it? What is the standard that God has laid down? So again, it's not a derision to say, well, w- women are too silly to teach. Not at all. There are many female theologians I read every week to prepare my sermons because they do know the Word of God. They are gifted. But there's an order that either, either we believe the Bible and we submit to it, or we try to revise it, change it, and make it fit us in our culture. And that's where we're at today with a lot of people who once stood on these principles and said, well, that's the word. But now they're saying, you know what? We didn't understand it right. Paul, he was kind of wrong. Or no, Paul really meant this. And you know, now here in the year 2000, whatever, now we finally understand. I don't believe that. God said that the church has always been the pillar and buttress of truth. We've always had the word of God and the word of God does not change. (laughs) So I'm just saying, here we are. Happy day. But here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Let me, let me go on. Here it is. What does he use here? What's his argument for this? Because right now it's just bigoted. Right now it's just Paul saying, I don't like women teachers. <laughs> I want them to be quiet. I want them to be submissive and not to uh, uh, exert authority over the man. If that's all he said, we'd have reason to say, I think that's cultural. Or I think that's just his bigotness com- coming out, bigotry coming out. But look what he says. He doesn't use culture because that's what many have said. Well, the the reason women should preach now is because back in Roman days, they weren't allowed and they were looked down upon. Times have changed. This is not about times of change or culture. Here's his argument. The reason a woman should not teach or usurp authority authority over the man is because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's hard language, but this is the Bible. And again, I have to say, either we believe this or we don't. I'm not saying I like all of this or even understand all of this. But he leaves the earthly sphere with his reasoning here and goes directly to heaven and says, this is how God made things. The reason a woman can't usurp authority over a man is because God made the man first and then the woman. And then he goes further here. I didn't ask Paul to do this, but he did this. He said it was the woman who was deceived, not the man. Now again, that is not trying to say a woman is silly. We already covered that, that she's not intelligent. We're not covering any of that. He's just stating what happened in history. And this is God's will, therefore. This is God's plan for the church, and this is the reasoning it's based on. It has nothing to do with culture, or giftedness, or talented it has everything to do with thus saith the Lord. And again, I'm first to say the Bible doesn't always make sense to us, yet we must submit to it and trust it. Isn't that what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is all about? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. But all of us, I included, try to figure out the Bible, and if, I, if something is uncomfortable or seems to be harsh or may bring con, you know, persecution my way, if I stand for it, I try to fix it and say, well, it can't mean this, and it really can't mean that, and, and I don't understand why I would say that, but it's not our job to understand why. It is our job to submit to the revelation before us. Once we've exegeted it and studied it, and we've done that tonight, we've looked at the words, we looked at the definition of the Greek, we've looked at the the syntax and the structure, and there is no other explanation, no matter how many of these false prophets are out here now telling us that it's not meaning what it's meaning. Let me hurry up, we're almost there. Verse 11 and 12, Paul takes a pause here, and he reminds husbands and wives again about their equality together in Christ. This This is the balance of scripture again. Verse 11 and 12, he says, Nevertheless, I know I'm giving a pretty hard road here, man, but nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man the first time, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. He reminds them of of our codependency on each other at this point. Yes, there's an order that God has given from the beginning of time, but he also reminds us, that we are not independent from each other, we need each other. That's the complementarian idea. We need each other. God's made us with specific gifts and differences, but when we come together, it's perfect. Okay, maybe not in this fallen world, but it, they work together. They, we complement each other when we submit to God first and not our own desires and selfishness. Last argument, he, he's not done yet. <laughs> he goes one more time, to what many have called the, the argument of nature, but actually the word there can mean custom, things that have naturally evolved to be customary. So it's one more argument back to the custom of the day. In verse 13 and 15, he says, judge for yourselves, just think about it. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself tell you, teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a shame or a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given her for a covering. And again, Many groups have taught because of that that it's your hair that's the covering and not another covering. I believe Paul's talking about both, but he's just saying in, in, the, in the custom, this is what I was saying earlier, it was customary for men to have short hair and for women to have longer hair because it was her glory. Now again, that's how he kind of ends this. I know it's, it's like we've been going around and around, but he ends it beautifully here in verse 16. That's how he ends his, his arguments for women wearing head coverings, okay? And say hey, I think you should still do this. And he gives this whole headship thing, and whether we like it or not, he bases it on God's will and, and not culture. But then he says in verse six, uh, 16, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I love that ending. He says, uh, you want to argue about this? There's two ways to look. Both, both are good interpretations, and I think both fit the, the text. Now, more. Do you want to argue about this? That's not our practice. We don't argue as a church. We don't. We don't discuss these. We don't fight and disagree when we see the plain word of God. We don't want to be discourteous dis to each other or contentious. But I also like how the NASB and the HCSB have translated this, which could he could have been, been meaning. We have no other practice. You want to argue about this? We have no other practice, and we have no other custom nor do any of the churches he's just saying this is what the people of god are to do you can argue about it you can be upset about it and this is my word to many liberals today in, in the evangelical world that are that are just hopping mad about this fact that women can't pastor and preach and do everything that, that they feel they want to do paul's saying that's just not the custom whether we like it or not so let's stop arguing about it and let's get back to the very hinge that 1 Corinthians swings on. The hinge that the whole book of 1 Corinthians swings on is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says, so whether you eat or drink or wear a head covering or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Remember what the crux of this book is saying is get your eyes off yourself in the first place and back on God. Submit to him for his glory and stop worrying about your own petty issues. That's tough, but we all need to be reminded of that every day. Thank God for his word and thank God for a savior who is responsible for us, making it very easy for us to submit totally to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the patience of your saints tonight as we've gone over. I thank you, Father, for uh, just encouraging us in your word. May we have learned some things to stand on. But ultimately, Father, let us have a goal to glorify you and not worry about this culture being happy with us, but let us be faithful to you so that you can reveal yourself to them in all glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.